Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. As this morning, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans and, and be looking at what God has to say to us through Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Listen to this bold statement. It was stated once in the 18th century. A hundred years from my death, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker, unquote. This, was, this comment was made by the 18th century French philosopher Voltaire. Voltaire was a hostile opponent of Christianity, and he was convinced that his criticisms and objections would be part of what brought the death of the Christian faith. But when Voltaire's hundred years were up, the Bible was not an irrelevant relic, relic of antiquity, but the Bible was increasing even more in its influence and circulation. In fact, one of my favorite stories is that at that hundred-year mark of Voltaire's prediction, Voltaire's own home had become the property of the president of the Evangelical Society of Geneva, who used it for his ministry to store Bibles and gospel tracts to use in their ministry. Voltaire's own home became a storehouse for Bibles because there was such a demand to use for them of them in ministry. That's because Christians in the 18th century, just like Christians in the 21st century, we are not intimidated by objections in the Bible because we've seen that God's word is true and that it has withstood objections for thousands of years because of its truthfulness. As Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. So as we continue to our, to our study of the book of Romans, we see that Paul here is also not intimidated by inje- objections to his message. In fact, Paul knows that there will be objections to this message. He knows that people are going to read this and, 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 and there's objections that are going to come up. And so what Paul is doing in the section that we're reading today, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul is putting forward four sets of questions to take those objections head on that he knows might be in the minds of some of his readers. He wants to answer his readers' questions. He wants to correct any false conclusions that they may be getting from his teaching so far through Romans. You see, as we've seen so far in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, we saw that all people face the just wrath of God for our unrighteousness and ungodliness, our rebellion against God by exchanging God for the worship of ourselves. Then in Romans 2, Paul says that it's not just the unreligious people out there that are under the wrath of God that need salvation, but it's also every religious person that's also under God's wrath, including religious Jews. That's what Paul's focus is here, that there is no partiality in God's judgment. There's no religious privileges on the day of judgment. Everyone will be held accountable for their rejection of God. And Paul knows, though, that there's going to be objections that come from this teaching. And he mainly is going to deal with this question, this objection question of, is this fair? This, this judgment of God, is that fair? Is God fair in all that what Paul said in this gospel proclamation so far? And in particular, Paul focuses on two aspects of God's fairness. Is God fair in his faithful promises to the Jews? And is God fair 
in his judgment. Let's look at the first of these objections, the first question of an objection that would come in this passage. Let's, let's look at this. Is God fair? Is God faithful to his promises? Look at verses 1 and 2 with me, where Paul writes, Then, or therefore, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul opens with two questions. In light of everything he said in Romans 2, that there's no religious partiality in God's judgment, that it's not external Jewish circumcision that matters, but the internal circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, he says, then or therefore, you see how he starts there? So in light of that, is there any advantage in being an ethnic Jew? Is there any value to circumcision? And Paul's not just talking about, is there any little advantages? Oh, there's no bad advantages there, but maybe there's a little something we can find here. That's not what Paul's talking about. This, this language of advantage, this language of value comes right out of Romans chapter 2, especially chapter 2, verse 25. You can see the same word there. And Paul here is talking about a saving value, a saving advantage. Here's the objection that Paul's handling. He's saying, listen, God has promised a future salvation for the Jewish people. God promised that in the Old Testament. So isn't then there some saving advantage for the Jews? Now, if we've been reading Romans chapter 2, the context would seem to suggest that Paul's answer is going to be no, because, because Paul's made it clear in that declaration. God shows no partiality. That's, that's clear in Romans chapter 2. He makes it clear that it's not external circumcision that, that matters, but internal circumcision of the heart. So it seems like Paul's going to say no. It seems like Paul's going to say, of course there's no saving advantage. But that's actually not Paul's answer here. See, we're reading the text right when we would think that's his answer, but he's saying, you don't quite understand what I've said. So he's saying, is there any saving advantage for the Jew? Well, what's his answer there? He says, yes, much in every way. Which we could go, well, how does that work? How does what he's saying here go with what he said in Romans chapter 2? In what way? How do Jews have saving advantage? Well, Paul says to begin with, meaning he's, see, to begin with means, or first means there's a second. To begin with means there's something else coming down the line, right? It means like he's going to, there's a long list of things he could describe here, but he actually never gets to the rest of the list because it's almost like he gets interrupted by subsequent questions. I mean, that, that happens to all of us, right? Someone asks you a question, you try to explain, and before you can even finish your explanation, they ask another question. You're like, I haven't even finished the first question yet, right? That's what Paul's interacting here in this discussion. But he starts with the most important advantage. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? They're the Old Testament scriptures. But it's not that just the Jews possessed the Old Testament scriptures. It's what the Old Testament scriptures possessed in themselves. What is significant about the Old Testament? The Old Testament testified to God's promise of salvation for the Jews. You see, if you accept the Old Testament as the word of God, which Paul did, then you clearly see that there is an advantage from God's promise to the Jewish people. The Old Testament scriptures testify of God's election of Israel as his covenant people and his promises to them of future salvation. And we know that God always keeps his promises. That's Paul's point here. 
all of this is fully anticipating Paul's further explanation. We're going to get there later in the study of Romans, in Romans 9 through 11, where Paul says that in the last days, all Israel will be saved. Not, not every individual Jew, but salvation will come in mass to Israel. But, but we're not in Romans 9 yet. He's kind of showing what's going to happen there, but he's describing, answering this question now. He says, yes, there is a saving advantage for Israel because they have the promises from God of future salvation, and God always keeps his promises. And, and, and that's a good news for us today, right? Isn't that good news for us? That God always keeps his promises. Do you know that? Do you know that in your heart, that that is an unchangeable part of God's character, that he always keeps his promises? And this, this gets to the heart of the objection that Paul is addressing here. If God promised salvation to Israel and God always keeps his promises, then how does Paul explain his argument in Romans chapter 2 that the Jews were under the wrath of God for their sin and unfaithfulness? How do those two things then go together? Well, he explains himself. Look at verses 3 and 4 where he goes on to ask another question. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, so to understand these verses, we have to kind of take a step back and ask a couple questions. Here's the first question we should ask of these verses. What does Paul mean when he says that some were unfaithful? What does it mean that they were unfaithful? Not what you think or I think or what can we put into the text, but what does Paul mean by this unfaithfulness? We have to get that from the context. Again, we have to look where it comes from Romans 2, where Paul is talking about where the Jews failed to keep the law. The Jews were unfaithful in their covenant with God. We see this in Romans chapter 2, 1 through 3, and verses 8 and 9, and verse 12, and verse 21 through 25. Over and over and over again, Paul shows how the Jews were unfaithful to keep their covenant promise with God. So in fact, Paul uses four different terms in these verses we're studying this morning to describe the same idea coming out of Romans 2 of this Jewish covenant, un covenantal unfaithfulness. He uses that word unfaithfulness. He uses that word liar, which comes out of Romans 1 and 2, that, that they, they were lying by breaking the covenant, by not keeping the law, that they were unrighteous. And then he uses that term, my lie, even personifies it. So if that's the unfaithfulness he's talking about, this covenant-breaking then who are those that were the some? We should ask that, right? He says some. If you see a pronoun like some in the verse, we have to ask, who's the pronoun referring to? So who is the some that were unfaithful? Again, we find the answer in Romans chapter 2. This is, this, is, this is kind of concluding that whole argument. Who are the some? Well, we saw at the end of chapter 2 in verses 25 through 29 that, that, that the some are any Jews who hadn't experienced the inward heart circumcision that comes through the Holy Spirit. So these unfaithful are all who have not and will not trust in Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And so here is the objector's question in those terms. Does the covenant faithlessness, their breaking of the covenant, then nullify the faithfulness of God? I really like how the New Living Translation puts this. The New, Transla New Living Translation puts it this way. True. 
Some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? That's the idea here. And what's Paul's answer to that? What does he say? If, if they break the covenant, then will God break his promise? And Paul's answer is what? No, by no means. The New American Standard translates that as, may it never be. Good old King James would translate that saying, God forbid. Christian Standard Bible says, absolutely not. These translations reflect that Paul is giving the strongest possible no. If you weren't awake, now you are, right? No, that Paul could possibly give. Not in any way at all, he's saying. That sort of idea is wrong on every account. No way, Jose. That, that's what Paul's saying here. And he goes on to verse 4 to say, rather, in contrast with that kind of thinking, let God be true. Now, he's not saying let God be true, like he's giving permission. It's okay, God, you can be true this time. It's not that kind of let, right? I like how the, the Net Bible translates this. Let God be found true. Or the New Living would translate this as God is true. That's the idea here. Paul is making a, a strong confessional truth about this is who God is. God is true to his promises, no matter what other people do. God being true in the Old Testament referred to God's faithfulness. No matter what other people did, God was always faithful to his promises. In fact, when we look at those four terms Paul uses here of Jewish unfaithfulness, he always contrasts it with four terms of God's faithfulness. Verse 3, Israel was unfaithful, but God is faithful. Verse 4, Israel in Romans 2 could be classified as liars because they didn't keep the law, but God is true to his covenant promise. Verse 5, Israel was unrighteous, but God shows his righteousness to keep his promises. Verse 6, God, Israel faces judgment for her lie, but God displays his truthfulness. In other words, Paul is saying that despite Israel's failure, that's not what matters. That there is no possibility, no way, no shape, no form, no situation where God does not keep his promises to Israel. But then notice the scripture Paul quotes. Paul uses the scripture to back up his point there. He says in verse 4, halfway through, he says, as it is written. You see that? He's saying, listen, everything I'm trying to argue here, the Old Testament says the same thing. As it is written. And at first glance, it seems like this quotation is saying that God's promise fulfillment, the reason God's going to fulfill his promises is for the purpose that. You see how the quote starts with that? That for this purpose, God's going to be, be justified and prevail in victory when he finally saves Israel. But that's not the full picture of what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, listen, you get the idea so far. Yes, God is faithful to his promises, but you're not seeing the full extent of God's promises. Because when you look at the Old Testament, we see a more complex description of this promise. There's more nuance here when we understand where in the Old Testament Paul takes this scripture from. That's why I asked Joe to read Psalm 51 this morning. This quote is directly out of Psalm 51. That's the psalm that David reflects his repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. And it's a psalm where David says God is right for judging him for his sin. Yes, that he's also forgiven, but the context where Paul pulls this quotation from is about that God is right when he judges sin. 
Listen to the context. I'm going to read again verses 3 and 4 from what, what Joe read this morning. This is Psalm 51. This is where Paul's pulling the quote from, where David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, the context here is not about God being faithful for the purpose so that he would save David. No. The context here is about God's faithfulness for the purpose so that God would show that he is just in his judgment of David for his sins. Here's Paul's point. Here's why Paul, what Paul is doing here. Paul's saying, yes, God is faithful to his promises for Israel. God has promised to save Israel, and he will. But God has promised more than one thing. God's promise to Israel was not just about salvation. God has not only promised, and he will fulfill the promise to save Israel, but God has also promised, and David himself, king of Israel, recognized this promise that for those who don't repent, for those who, who can consistently live in their sin and don't repent, that there's a promise of future judgment. So here's how Paul answers that question. Isn't God faithful to his promises to Israel? Paul says, yes, God is faithful. God is faithful. God will bring about salvation for the Jewish people. But there's no individual Jewish person that can just presume, presume on those promises and say, just because I was born into this family, I'm guaranteed salvation because of my heritage. David understood this. David wrote this in the scriptures, that God is just and righteous. And although God will bring about salvation for the nation of Israel, he will also judge individuals who, who can't just assume they have God's covenantal mercy outside of repentance and faith in the Messiah. In other words, here's the point. God is faithful to his promises, both his promises of salvation and also the promises of judgment. And here's, here's the important point then. So this, there's all this about, this is a, a, a conversation, a focus about God and re, his relationship to his people, Israel. And here's the thing. Most of us aren't in that conversation, right? Most of us cannot be classified. No one here is God, right? Okay, so that's, that's out. And most of us here are, 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 are not Jewish by heritage, right? My wife is, but I don't think there, a lot of other people are. And, and so what does this have to do for us as Christians? Now, there's the most obvious connection that Paul's going to bring about later in Romans 9 through 11, where Paul is warning us as Gentile Christians not to show arrogance towards the Jews because, God, because we were grafted into their Jewish Messiah. We were grafted into their redemption, into their salvation, and that God has promised he is not through with his covenant people. So Paul's eventually going to say in Romans chapter 11, do not be arrogant towards the branches that were cut off towards Israel. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. God still has a promise and a plan for ethnic Israel, and he's going to fulfill his promises. See, we, just like Paul, we do not believe in replacement theology. We believe in the fulfillment of all theology in Christ. This is why we pray for God's mercy on Israel. This is why we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. This, this is why we pray and support our missionaries like the Wertheims with Jews for Jesus and the, and the Kinzels and their work. That's important that we remember the, uh, our, our context in, in salvation history. 
But there's also other implications. But as we think about how does this apply and what are the implications for us, we need to remember that the promises Paul's talking about were not meant for us. There's a danger there. Those are promises we're talking about God's people, Israel. We need to remember that, yes, God does keep all of his promises. As Paul says, let God be true, and everyone, though everyone a liar. However, not all of God's promises were made to us. There are many Old Testament promises made to specific people in specific circumstances, and we should not expect that just because God made those promises to them, we can adapt those promises as made to us. For instance, I think one of the most often quoted, misquoted promises in the Old Testament is 2 Chronicles 7.14. It's probably familiar to you as well, where, where um, God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What a glorious promise. But it's not meant for us. God never promised that to us. That is not a promise for the United States. That is not a promise for any country here in the 21st century. That is a promise to Israel at the time of Solomon's temple. Saying that that promise then applies to us is like when, we were in, when I was with my family in Disneyland two weeks ago, and I made a, if I make a promise to my five-year-old, say, I promise you we're going to make it on Space Mountain. And if my two-year-old hears that and he thinks, I'm promising him that, and, and he gets upset with me because he's not getting to go on Space Mountain. That was never the promise. I never made that promise. It's okay. He, we worked it out. He went on the teacups. <laughs> and he said that Daddy went faster than Mommy on the teacups. So there we go. <laughs> now, there are principles from the Old Testament. There are principles even from that passage in Second Chronicles that we see that over and over again that God does respond to humility and repentance, but it's not a promise. It's not a promise, at least to us. In the same way, these promises Paul's talking about here in Romans 3, they are not promises to us, but there are principles we can gather from these. There are similar situations. See, Paul is dealing with this faulty objection that's misinterpreting God's promises, that's misinterpreting what God has said, that's focusing on only the good aspects of salvation and kind of forgetting that God has also talked about judgment. Can we make the same kind of misunderstanding today? Oh, yeah. But let me give you an example from the most commonly recognized New Testament verse. This is spoken to us, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world. There, there is more than a promise here. This isn't just a promise. This is a declaration of God's very loving disposition and character towards the world. It's actually a shocking statement in Scripture. God doesn't just love the children of Israel, but God loved everyone in the world. He loves everyone in the world, even the wicked, even the ungodly, even those who don't love God. God loved them. But so many people make the same mistake as the objector here in Romans chapter 3. See, if we start to think that God's love for the world would exclude his judgment on the world, we're making that same mistake. See, the, the argument that some would give is, goes like this. If God loves people and God has declared his love for people, then God will certainly not condemn them. 
But that ignores the full context of what God's saying here, just in the same way that Paul's objector ignored the full context of God's promises to Israel. We ignore that Jesus concludes the whole paragraph, the whole discourse in John 3.36 by saying, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. This idea of judgment, of condemnation, of wrath, it's not something the church invented. It's not something Paul invented. This is at the heart of Jesus' teaching about what he was doing in giving eternal life. God's love is not to the exclusion of his judgment, but God's love is demonstrated by giving us the only hope we would have in judgment, by sending his son to bear the judgment we deserve for our sins so we could have eternal life. In fact, if you are visiting with us today and you have not received this gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, we want to say welcome. We are so glad that you're here and joining us today. We hope that you'll stay for lunch even. And, 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 and we want you to know that this message of John 3.16 is for you. No, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how guilty you may feel about your past, no matter what shame may have been heaped upon you, no matter what the world has done to, to, to break you in your life so that maybe you don't even know what love is anymore. You need to know that God loves you. The God of the universe, the God who created you, has declared his love for you. Here's how much God loves you. That although you and I and everyone else, although we have rebelled against God, although we have shamed God, Although we have, 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 should have worshipped and honored the God who created us, we rejected him and tried to replace him by worshiping ourselves. That's what the Bible calls sin. Even though that is our rebellion against God, God loved us and sent his son, Jesus, so that we could have life, so that we could be forgiven. Jesus lived the perfect life in our place that we couldn't. And Jesus went to the cross and died as a substitute in our place for our sin bearing the judgment that we deserve in our place, paying the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion. And Jesus rose three days later from the dead to, to, to be vindicated and to display that, that he is victorious over sin, he is victorious over death, and to offer you and I this gift of eternal life, that we could have our sins forgiven, that we could be reconciled with the God who loves us, and here is the promise that Jesus makes. It's in the rest of the verse. That whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. If you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and this new covenant promise that he's made, trust in him as Savior and as Lord, he offers you this eternal life. You can have this today as a free gift of grace. If you would like to know more, if you would like to, to, to experience this gift of forgiveness and grace, please don't leave today without talking to someone. Talk to the person who brought you to church this morning. Talk to any member of our church. I'll, I'll be around for the, 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 the thanks, thanks meal afterwards. I'd love to talk to you so that, that you can know about this gift of eternal life. This, this is how Paul's dealing with that first objection then. He, he's, he's saying that God is faithful into his promises to the Jews. Yes, he's promised. He's faithful to his promise both in salvation but also in judgment. But then there's a second objection that comes from this. That second objection is, well, is God fair in all this judgment? Look at verses five, 5 through 7 with me. 
Where Paul says, but, here's another question from his objector, but if our unrighteousness served to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way, he says. By no means, for then God could not judge the world. For if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Now, I gotta be honest with you guys. I really struggled through these verses this week. I, I, I told uh, uh, the class that Elias and I lead on Wednesday nights that I, I always start with my own study of Scripture. I don't want to just offer here, here's what the commentators say, that I'm, I dig into the Scripture and I study the Scripture and I come to my own conclusions so that I interact with commentaries and other theological works. It's not just I'm just taking what they say. Sure, it sounds good. John MacArthur said it, so I guess I'll say it. No, it's, it's, it's I can interact with them. Is that in the text or is that not in the text? But when I was wrestling through this section of Scripture, I went, this is really hard. What is Paul saying here, and how does that make sense in context of what he's going on? And I, I, I came to some conclusions, and then I got into the commentaries, and they're like, this is the hardest section of Romans. I'm like, oh, that makes me feel better. But here's the difficulty with these verses. We need to ask not just, oh, what does the question seem to say, but how do these questions relate to that quotation he just gave in Psalm 51? How do these questions relate to the whole context of what Paul's saying? And more importantly, we need to ask, what exactly is the objection that Paul is addressing? And does that objection actually make sense in the context? So we're going to have to spend some mental energy. We'll reward you with turkey afterwards. But let's, so I hope this is beneficial as we try to wrestle through what is going on in these verses. The question in verse 5 and the question in verse 7 are basically the same question. If you look at it, they're, they're the same question with a couple different words. And it seems like they're asking something clear here. If our unrighteousness, or in verse 7, our lie, or breaking the covenant, serve to show God's truth and his righteousness in judging our sin, then is God unrighteous to judge us? So at first glance, it seems like the New Living Translation would sum this up rightly. And the New Living would say, since my sin serves the good purpose of showing people God is just in his judgment, is it fair for him to judge my sin? Here's the problem with that understanding. The problem is, it doesn't make any sense. When you think about what the objection would be, it just doesn't make sense. This is why I was struggling with this. First of all, it directly contradicts what Paul just said in Psalm 51. It says that God is just and should be just in, in, in his judging of sin. And second of all, if you think about the logic here, here's the logic of that understanding. The logic would be that the objection is, it's such a good thing for God to punish sin that God shouldn't punish sin. That doesn't make sense, right? What do you mean, what do you mean about that? That's not an objection. That makes no logical sense. God shouldn't judge sin because it makes God look good. That doesn't, that's not an objection, now, maybe in our modern world, you find that objection, right? In our modern world, you find the objection of God shouldn't judge anybody. If God gets glory from that and he's judging people, he should just stop judging people. But no first century Jew would ever make that objection. In the context that Paul's ministering in, no one would say that. So what's the objection here? Why is God's judgment, specifically his judgment on his covenant people, of Israel, <clears throat> why is that a problem here? 
The problem is not that Paul's statement is about God judging unrighteousness. The only thing that makes sense is that Paul, the problem is coming from Paul's ex- description of the extent of their unrighteousness. Follow me here. If Paul is right from all he's argued that the Jews were under sin in such a way that they could do nothing to earn their salvation, they have the law, but they can't keep the law. If their unrighteousness meant that they can't keep the law unless the Holy Spirit gave them that new circumcision of the heart, that's what Romans 2 says, if the only way they could be saved is not by trying to keep the law, but by God's grace through Christ, then they're in the same situation as the rest of the Gentiles. They'd be completely unable to save themselves. So how could God hold them accountable for something they were unable to do? I think that makes the most sense in the context here. If Jews can do nothing by the law to contribute to their own salvation, then how can God justly inflict wrath on them if they couldn't do what the law intended them to do? Now, that's a real objection. That's not just some idea of God shouldn't judge people. This is a real objection to everything Paul has said so far. This is about the justice of God's judgment if people are unable to save themselves. This demands some kind of answer. And so Paul says, I'm going to speak with some human logic here. Is that unfair, he's asking? Is God unfair to punish unrighteous Jews if they can't make themselves righteous then by the law? And Paul's answer is, no, by no means. May it never be. God forbid. Absolutely not. In no way at all. No way, Jose. Why? Why is that not the case? Then look at Paul's argument. You see uh, in verse 6, that word for, he says, here's my reasoning. For, this is why we know this is specifically about this Jewish issue and a Jewish objection and a Jewish answer. Because he's going to compare Jews with Gentiles here. If, if this judgment makes God unrighteous, then it would make it wrong for God to judge any sin in the whole world because everyone is in the same condition, that no one can save themselves. Again, as I said, this is a Jewish answer to a Jewish objection. All Jews in the first century assumed that Gentiles would face judgment, that God should judge them and God will judge them and God is righteous to judge them. And here Paul is saying that, listen, if the Jewish objection is that Jews should escape judgment because they couldn't fulfill the law. They're under sin and can't fulfill the law, so why should God judge them? Well, if that's the objection, then really God shouldn't judge anyone at all because the Gentiles are in the same situation. They can't fulfill it either. And then if all the Gentiles didn't escape judgment, then God's election and God's promise to the Jews, they don't really matter much, do they? Paul's making this, object, this, this answer to this objection to, to, to his Jewish audience. He's saying that sinful Jews are going to face the same judgment as sinful Gentiles because God shows no partiality. That, that's, his, that's his whole argument here. Because moral depravity and the inability to save oneself does not take away our moral responsibility. Yes, we can't save ourselves, but we are still responsible for what we do in our rebellion of God. We have moral responsibility for our sin. Now, that's hard for us because we don't encounter that sort of thinking, right? We live in the 21st century. We live in a postmodern society. We don't encounter that kind of thinking. What does our culture think about this? Our culture thinks things like, God ain't going to judge anyone. 
I don't know if they use ain't, but God's not going to judge anyone because how can Paul talk about judgment at all? Everyone's going to find their own path to salvation. There's no judgment. But that's not the cultural mindset Paul's dealing with here. And then again, I think, though, if you think about it, and I've said before, even if we think about our own cultural environment, that I I think that our, our culture at least implicitly does understand that there is judgment that there is a final judgment. I've stated previously that, that you look at our culture and our culture's reaction to, to, to the desire for justice and its reaction to any perceived injustices. It doesn't matter what ideology that our culture follows, if they're, if they're, 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 they're uh, more liberal or they're more, more conservative or if they're Democrats, they're Republicans or they're, what, what their cultural background or ethnic background is. If there is a perceived injustice, there is a, a visceral reaction of this is wrong. There is right and wrong. There is some standard of right and wrong. So our culture would understand that if there's some standard of right and wrong, there has to be some sort of idea of final judgment. Because if there is no standard of morality, if there is no final judgment, then it's all about preference. Or it's all about who has the most power to inflict their morality on everybody else. See, there's a common understanding even in our culture about the importance of justice. So in in fact, when I've been thinking about this passage, our culture says the same thing as this Jewish objector. This Jewish objector is saying, yes, all them deserve to be judged, but it's uh, it's not fair for God to judge me because I did the best I could. That's the same thing our culture would say, right? It's always all them deserve to be judged. It's all those people that are, are, are of a different, different idea and different preferences and different political ideology. They're the ones who are unjust, but not me, because I did the best I could. I, I did the best with the limited ability and knowledge I had. And Paul says, no, that doesn't work. All face the same judgment. God shows no partiality. We all have moral responsibility for our sin. And we see that all this comes together in Paul's conclusion here in verse 8. Let's look at the last verse there, verse 8, where Paul says, and why, and why not do good, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm, let me read this rightly, actually, and why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Here's the heart of it. Here's the heart of all that Paul is teaching. The real issue here is that people are accusing that what Paul is saying in this gospel of grace is denying any sort of moral responsibility. As I've said, the Jewish idea of of salvation is that God has elected Israel and has shown his grace to elect Israel, but then after that showing of grace, then Israel has to put effort to obey the covenant by their works to maintain their position in the covenant. So it's God's grace plus your efforts of obedience that saves you. You have to have some sort of of, of, of that to be able to have some moral responsibility. And Paul is saying, no, it's all by grace. It's not God is gracious with you, but then you better earn the rest of the way. God's saying it's 100% by grace. We are all sinners saved purely by his sovereign grace and continue to be saved by his sovereign grace. And here's the objection. Here's the heart of it. If there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, the Jews would say, if there's nothing we could do to earn our salvation through the law, if we're only helpless sinners saved only by God's grace, which would bring him glory as the gracious one, then Paul must be teaching it doesn't matter how we live because it's all by grace. In fact, if it's all by grace, as someone accused Paul, let's just do more evil. 
Man, can you imagine if we did even more evil, how much more we could sing Amazing Grace? I mean, if I was that much of a wretch and I can sing of that Amazing Grace, if I'm even more of a wretch, I can sing even louder of Amazing Grace. That's, what the, that's the argument that Paul is confronting here. This is the real objection. It's the, it's the idea they're saying grace and more responsibility can't go together. If salvation's all by grace, it's not about our obedience to the law, then we have no more responsibility, right? We can just sin all the more because it's all of grace. And Paul's saying, no, that is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Any denial of any sort of morality or moral responsibility, that is a slanderous attack. Some some translations would translate verse 8 as a blasphemous attack on the gospel, which brings about just condemnation. Paul's going to get back to this later. He's foreshadowing Romans 6 when Paul says this. What shall we say then to this message of grace? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. By no means. God forbid. No way, Jose. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were saved by grace alone. But that grace transforms us. It transforms us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that grace changes us. And that grace would then give us the desire then to bring about obedience in God's will. So yes, there's morality and grace. Yes, there's moral responsibility and grace. And this is the point that Paul is driving to. All of us are morally responsible for our sin. And we are all in need of grace. In fact, God's grace is the only way that we can live out any consistent moral responsibility in our lives as we live this newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is important for us today. We glory in grace as we should We glory in grace as Paul did, but we need to make the same cautions as we correct, saying grace does not mean license. Grace does not mean do more evil that grace may abound. There is a dangerous misconception of the grace of God. There's a dangerous misinterpretation that can lead people to think that grace means there's no moral norms, that grace means there's no judgment, that grace means that you can do then whatever you want. How many Christians have you talked to that know all the right words about grace through faith? Who could talk all about the experience of of God coming into their heart? That, That it's not about religion, it's about relationship. All that is true. But there's a misconception that you start to see evidence in their lives that they're they talk about grace, but there's no actual evidence that grace has worked in their lives. They don't show any evidence of grace because they don't show any repentance of sin. They show no hatred of the sin that Jesus died for. So how they experience grace? They talk about grace, but they don't show any evidence of grace because they don't show any pursuit of holiness. They don't show any pursuit of the God who displayed that grace to them. They don't display any evidence of grace because they don't show any love for God's people because they have no love for the church. In fact, sometimes they are opposed to the church. They don't even come to church. So they they don't show any evidence of grace because they show no love for the things that God loves. 
They're proclaiming God's grace, but they've not experienced God's grace. They would claim to live under grace, but they're actually living as they're still slaves under sin. This is the danger that Paul's addressing. Paul is saying that if you think you believe in a gospel that says, because it's by grace, you can live any way that you want to, that's not the gospel. That's a gospel that you made up in your own head. That's not Jesus' gospel. It's a false gospel. Any gospel without any moral norms, without any coming judgment, that's a gospel without any need for the cross. It's a gospel without any need for Jesus. Instead, Paul reminds us of the true gospel, of the good news, of the, the, the real, what it means to have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. That God is just. He's emphasized this throughout these objections. God is just for condemning us as sinners. God is righteous to inflict his wrath upon us. God is justified in his judgment because we have rebelled in our sin against the one who created us, and we deserve wrath. That we'd remember that. We deserve hell, but God has promised us heaven. It's not just about grace. It's about what that grace has given us. We deserve hell, but God has promised us heaven through the work of his son. If we would place our faith in him, which means that we die to our old self. We die with Christ, and we rise with him to newness of life. That's what Romans 6 says. We are, as... as, as, as I was trained, and so many here were trained as we share the gospel. And one Ill, beautiful illustration that we are like a beggar who receives a gift from the hand of the king. The beggar doesn't deserve it. He never will deserve it. But the beggar can know he has it. And because he has received such a gracious gift from such a loving king, he will obey that king, and he will love that king, and he will follow that king anywhere the king would lead. And so we have received the gift of grace from the king of the universe. We didn't deserve that gift when we received it. We don't deserve it now. We never will deserve it. It's purely by grace. But because we've experienced that grace, because we've experienced the goodness of that king of the universe, we love him and we follow him and we obey him in the new life that he's given us. We don't do evil that good may come, but we do good because we've experienced the grace of our loving king. We need to remember as we, we close our time here that Paul wrote Romans with a purpose. This is not just some theological treatise. This was a purpose for the church in Rome. This is a purpose for our church today. It was to motivate the church to doing good. It was to motivate the church to unity, to motivate the church to holiness, to motivate the church to missions. And But what is, what is Paul's motivation? Paul's motivation is not, God started it, but you better finish it. God gave you grace, but you better step up or you're not going to make the bar. That's not Paul's motivation. Paul's motivation is, do you know the grace of God? Have you experienced the grace of God? Do you need to be reminded of the grace of God? Because the grace of God is our motivation to all those things. The truth of God's grace, the truth of the gospel drives our lives of obedience. We seek to love others in the church even those that, that, that we struggle with loving. We, we would prefer the differences of, of people, other people's preferences that are different to our preferences of the church. We would seek unity in that. We would give up our rights for, for the benefit of weaker brothers and sisters of the church, Paul says. Why? 
because we're supposed to, because it'll earn some, it'll help us earn our salvation? No. We do that because of the grace we've experienced. We love those whom God loves. We've experienced God's grace. We understand that we're all under all sinners under that grace, and so we love God's, God's family. We fight against our temptation to sin. We repent when we do fall into sin. We try and strive to live holy lives, battling our sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because of the grace we've experienced. Because we have experienced the glory of that God who saved us. So why would we ever go back to exchanging the worship of him for the worship of our own lusts? It makes no sense if we've experienced grace. We share Paul's heart for the lost. We aren't ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And we strive to bring the gospel to those who have not heard, to those, to the ends of the earth and to those in our own backyards, in our families, in our workplaces, in our classrooms. Why? Because we earn more merit points when we do that? No, because we recognize that we've been given a free gift of grace. We didn't deserve that just like they don't. But we have it as a free gift, so why wouldn't we offer it to them as well? The world is always going to have objections to the gospel. The world's always going to have objections to this message of grace, just like those in Paul's day, just like Voltaire in the 18th century, still today. But as Christians, we're not intimidated by these objections because we've experienced the grace of God. We've experienced the grace of God that has transformed our lives. So we don't have to be afraid of objections. We don't have to run from objections. We see those objections as an opportunity. It's an opportunity to magnify the grace of God. It's an opportunity to refocus again on God's grace and make it known to others. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We glory in your grace. We thank you, Lord, for how you would use objections, you would use challenges, that you would use difficulties in understanding these things to drive us deeper in our own understanding of your grace. Because it is your grace that motivates us. It is your grace that drives us. It is your grace that reminds us of the new life we have in your Son that would drive us to those lives of holiness and obedience. So Father, help us to glory in your grace as we reflect on what we're thankful for, that we'd be again and again reminded of the, 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 the goodness of your grace that we have to give thanks and praise to. To you, our wonderful, merciful Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.